The presidential motorcade had just passed through heavy crowds in downtown Dallas and was circling through the fringes of the business district when three shots suddenly rang out. Destroying the media lies and dismantling the narratives. One story at a time. It's the Adrian Slate Show. Time Magazine has chosen its person of the year, and it's never ever a person anymore. It's always like this collective that's supposed to be a person or a movement or whatever. But they've decided to go with the Guardians. Who are the Guardians? They are the news media. The fake news media. Supposedly, they're more noble than everybody because they're standing up against the fascism of Trump, which doesn't exist. If anything, it's the malfeasance of misinformation by the news media. And they decided to slip in an interesting character in there just because this guy contributed to the Washington Post a few times. Jamal Khashoggi. Yeah, we're going to talk about Jamal Khashoggi. Now, a lot of people have already covered this, but one of the interesting things is they don't tell you why we should be upset. They give you their side as to why we should be upset, but it's kind of slightly misdirected. Now, anytime somebody is murdered, dismembered for political reasons by another country, yeah, that should be an issue. But the guy was not somebody who is a citizen of America. He just happened to be somebody who wrote an opinion piece for the Washington Post against Saudi Arabia, against the royal family and the new prince. So what they decided to do is they decided to basically elevate this guy. Now, keep in mind, this guy has ties to the Muslim Brotherhood. This guy is an Al-Qaeda sympathizer. He is an Islamist. And on top of all of that, he actually aided and embedded in trying to cloak Osama bin Laden. So why are we praising this guy? So basically, this guy, he, he's over in Turkey. He decides to go to the embassy, the consulate. He wants to go in there to get some paperwork, having something to do with either a marriage or divorce. I can't remember off the top of my head. He goes in, but he tells his wife in the car, hey, look, hang on to this phone. If something were to happen, please call somebody and let them know. And so she's out in the car for hours. And as she's out in the car, unbeknownst to her, the Saudis kind of know where this guy is. And they fly in and they bring in empty suitcases. They decide to stop off and pick up a bone saw. Because, you know, whenever you're in Turkey, you know, you want to pick up some souvenirs. (laughs) Maybe a shirt that said, Uh, You know, I went to Turkey and all I got was this stupid shirt and a bone saw. And they roll in and apparently there was a scuffle and apparently they were killed during the scuffle. Khashoggi was killed in the in the consulate. And then there were some calls made. They want to say it was linked back to the new Saudi prince. And they also want to say that there there was a doctor who uh, was proficient with the bone saw, who decided to whistle while he worked. You know, he's singing songs, sawing up some limbs. They stuff it in the suitcases. Next thing you know, they're leaving with filled suitcases on a plane out of there. And a guy who looks like Khashoggi, wearing Khashoggi's clothes, goes rolling down the street. He's the decoy. And we find out later nobody knows where uh, Khashoggi is anymore. And it's 
you know, they must be, uh, must be murdered by the Saudi prince. So that's what the narrative is. That's what's going on. And Turkey has kind of played with it a little bit, and we're not getting all the full information. They're saying there's audio that everybody's heard and what have you. And so because of this situation, we're supposed to disown Saudi Arabia as an ally. We're supposed to also, and this is a bipartisan narrative, we're supposed to shun and castigate and call for even regime change on the new Saudi prince. Now keep in mind, what's going on in Saudi Arabia, it's not similar, but it's, it's as nuanced as what's going on in Syria. Because in Syria, the, here's, here's what it's played out as. Here's what the narrative always is. Saudi prince bad. They killed Washington Post correspondent. We need to go in and change regimes. Uh, that's not really everything that's going on. In Syria, it's the same thing. Assad is bad. He gassed people, people mad, and they want to uprise. And there's a military army that will help do it, and we need to remove Assad. When really, the rebel forces are littered with al-Qaeda, al-Nusra, al-Islam, and, and, it's, and it even gets more crazier than that when you find out al-Qaeda, which the al-Qaeda wing is called al-Nusra, is being funded and aided by Qatar and even some elements of the West, France, Germany, UK, even America, believe it or not. And then al-Islam is being funded by Saudi Arabia. It gets to be a cluster you-know-what, a cluster F, I don't even want to say because I can't. But it's the same thing in, in Saudi Arabia. It's more nuanced than that. Right now what we're seeing is a power struggle within the Saudi royal family. And think about it. If you were to remove um, the Saudi prince, it basically, what we have to look at is this. The Saudi prince, as much as we don't like Saudi Arabia, but they are an ally, we don't want to remove our influence with Saudi Arabia or our working relationship to open the door for China and Russia to step in and fill that void. We have to keep in mind that what was in Saudi Arabia was, was very Islamic uh, fundamentalist until until the Saudi prince was on board, the new one. And so this would be akin to us saying, well, let's go ahead and remove the Shah from Iran so we can install the Khomeini, which is basically what we did. Would it be easier to deal with a monarchy that is moderating its country than it would be to deal with an Islamic fundamentalist organization that wants to kill infidels like America that chant death to America. That's what we're dealing with in, in Saudi Arabia right now. And so we want to keep in mind that it's more nuanced than what you're getting from the news media. And so in just a moment, we're going to go through some of the nuances of what's happening in Saudi Arabia. And the overall goal of the show is to show you that there are outside influences paying people in Washington, D.C., whether it's think tanks, whether it's politicians, whether it's certain foundations, and it's coming from both sides. Saudi Arabia is paying for influence in the media and, and with politicians. Qatar is paying for influence for all of this. And this is why you're getting certain narratives that you're getting. It's not because of, of disdain and outrage and values and principles. It's because their pockets are being lined and you're now getting a bipartisan support for these kind of things. So let's get into what's going on with 
Saudi Arabia. So really, this whole thing is a power struggle. And the genesis goes back to January 2015. King Abdullah laying on his deathbed in a VIP hospital in Riyadh. Abdullah's sons and couriers briefly uh, delayed informing the successor, who is King Solomon, that the monarch had passed. Well, Solomon's son is known as MBS, Mohammed bin Solomon. And, you know, perhaps they were hoping to control the court's stash of money and sustain powerful positions for the Abdullah wing of the family. But the fallout extended to across the board. And this is from the Washington Post, so take it with a grain of salt, but maybe they're trying to do damage control here. But the fallout extended to the United States, China, Switzerland, and other countries. So the two most powerful clans of the royal family were jockeying for power. And the royal court around Mohammed bin Salman and the new king's favorite son even dared to try to kidnap a member of the Abdullah faction in Beijing. It was a brazen operation back in August 2016. MBS, that's what we're going to call Mohammed bin Salman, since that's what everyone else is calling him. Um, he became increasingly anxious and aggressive toward those who he considered enemies. And in the spring of 2017, a team of Saudi intelligence officers under the control of the royal court began organizing kidnaps, uh, kidnappings of dissidents abroad and at home. And detainees were held at covert sites if it wasn't in Saudi Arabia itself. And the Saudis used harsh interrogation techniques. They were forced to sign oaths that if they disclosed any of what had happened, they would have to pay a severe price. The sources of these stories had firsthand knowledge of events, but asked not to be identified because they involved sensitive international matters. That's more WAPO anonymous sources. So take that with a grain of salt. But some of this article does show some insight. U.S. and Saudi experts who have reviewed the intelligence findings said Khashoggi was murdered by a team sent from the royal court in Riyadh, part of the rapid action capability that had been organized 18 months beforehand. Khashoggi's provocative journalism and his ties to Qatar and Turkey had offended the increasingly autocratic crown prince who issued a, quote, bring him back order in July 2018, one that wasn't understood by U.S. intelligence until three months later after Khashoggi's disappearance in Istanbul. Jared Kushner, President Trump's son-in-law and advisor, became a close counselor to MBS. Kushner visited MBS in late October 2017. Neither has disclosed details about the conversations, but it is possible they discussed the royal family's machinations. A week after Kushner's visit, that November 4th, MBS staged what amounted to be an internal coup, arresting more than 200 Saudi princes and business leaders and holding them at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Riyadh. Plans for these arrests were made carefully by MBS's closest confidants in the royal court. Topping MBS's enemies in the Ritz-Carlton pooch was Prince Turkey bin Abdullah. So he's from the Abdullah line of the royal family. And that guy is an ambitious son of the late king who had earlier conveyed to America and Chinese contacts his worries about MBS's erratic decisions. Because remember, MBS is trying to moderate the country. Not so sure about the other side of the wing. Now, Turkey remains in captivity. His top military aide, Major General Ali Al-Qatani, died in custody after being held in the Ritz-Carlton last year. Members of the royal family had already been spying on one another. As the succession struggle loomed, one of Abdullah's sons described uh, bugging phones for many senior princes. Of the Abdullah camp, 
also purchased a Chinese-made device that would secretly detect the identification numbers of phones within 100 yards radius without accessing the phones directly. Surveillance devices hidden in ashtrays and other items were scattered around places in Riyadh to pick up the political plots and the gossiping. And so those who had helped King Solomon and his son MBS consolidate power in those early months was, or one of the people, was Saad al Katani, a lawyer and former Air Force member with a penchant for hacking and social media. The Salman camp had been initially suspicious of Katani because he had worked with one of uh, Tawari's assistants in the royal court in the early 2000s. But Katani was interrogated. He was beaten in the first days of Salman's ascension, but soon proved his loyalty to MBS with a vengeance. As director of the court's Center for Studies and Media Affairs, Katani fed MBS's suspicion about potential rivals and coup plotters. Katani also began assembling cyber weapons to use on behalf of MBS. In June 2015, he contacted a shadowy Italian group known as the Hacking Team about acquiring covert cyber tools. On June 29, 2015, Katani messaged the head of the Hacking Team, the Saudi Royal Court, the King Office, would like to be in productive cooperation with you and developed a long strategy and a partnership. Saudi and U.S. investigators have concluded that Katani, as MBS's commander of information-related operations, helped organize Khashoggi's murder. Now, they say that MBS was already a Machiavellian prince, encouraged by Mohammed bin Zayed, who is the crown prince of Abu Dhabi, and Sheikh Tahoun, a senior uh, United Arab Emirates intelligence official who visited MBS's yacht frequently on weekends during the first year. MBS had a reputation of being a hothead in his younger days, had intimidated the land registry official who was blocking a property transfer. The young prince wanted to uh, by sending him a bullet in the mail as a warning. But MBS proclaimed his desire to modernize the kingdom. But he was also paranoid about rivals such as Abdullah's sons, as well as Mohammed bin Naif, and later about a threat from the uncontrollable journalist Khashoggi. Ambassador Joseph Westfall, an American envoy in Riyadh, traveled that month to Jeddah, planning to see uh, Mohammed bin Naif. But he was rerouted at the airport and sent to see MBS instead, an unsuitable su uh, suggestion of who was really boss. That same month, longtime Saudi intelligence official named Saeed Al-Jabri visited then-CIA director John Brennan in Washington during a private visit. Jabri, a close advisor to Mohammed bin Naif, had been told that, uh, about Solomon's trip. When Jabri returned home, he was fired. Now he lives in exile. Members of the Abdullah clan were watching as MBS grasped the levers of power that had once been theirs. Knowing that Brennan and other members of the Obama administration were uneasy about MBS, several of Abdullah's sons hired a leading strate uh, strategic advisory firm in Washington to gather information about the new dynamic in U.S. and Saudi relations. So it goes on quite a bit where even um, in May 2016, Prince Turkey bin Abdullah and his closest advisors, they met with a series of former CIA and State Department officials in a suite in the Four Seasons Hotel in Georgetown, accompanied by Major General Ali Al-Khotani, the military advisor and protector to Turkey and the others uh, of the late King Abdullah, and a man who would end up dead next year after being held at the Riyadh Ritz-Carlton. 
MBS came to Washington next month in June 2016 and met with President Barack Obama and other officials. Up until then, the administration had been studiously neutral amid the mounting tension in the royal family, even with the crown prince and deputy seemingly on a collision course. But Obama was impressed by the vision and energy that MBS brought to his reform agenda and started heading in his direction. But so it really comes down to this split with the royal family. And when you find out that the side that is against MBS is a side that is more Islamic and it's a side that Qatar is, was, is more favorable with because the relationships with certain countries in the Middle East, which we'll get into in a little bit because some of the battleground in Syria really illuminates where the changing allies and, and the changing alliances start to facilitate where Saudi Arabia was fine with, with Syria's uh, you know, former leader, Bashar al-Assad's father. And then when Bashar al-Assad gets into power and then you find out Qatar, their royal uh, family, the leadership changes hands there due to one leader being deposed and the new leader being at odds with Saudi Arabia because he gave favorable statements and treatment to Israel and Iran. It's, it starts to just shift around where everybody is trying to find a way to remove leaders in certain countries and install puppet leaders that are more favorable to their interest. It gets to be this game of, you know, of deadly chess over in the Middle East. But these are things that we have to think about. We cannot just sit here in a vacuum and just go, well, you know, the Saudi prince, he's from Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is bad, even though we have to do business with them, and that's it. Because, like I said before, don't we want somebody moderating one of these countries? Because all the other ones, Turkey is going backwards. Erdogan has taken Turkey from a secular, modernized society, and he is turning it more fundamentalist. Of course, we know Iran. You know, we pulled the Shah out, and it's been a, co a collapsed regime ever since. But the one country that's starting to move in the right direction is Saudi Arabia. They're allowing women to drive, attend game, you know, uh, soccer games and sporting events. And there's, there's more of a softening going on as far as how the, the Islamic religion is infused with its government. And one of the things that I saw, actually I heard about this from, uh, I think his name is Riyad Patel, who is a homosexual Muslim. He traveled to, uh, he traveled to Saudi Arabia recently and was giving stories about how he was floored by how things have changed overnight almost. So these are things we have to think about. And when you start to see the financial connections between our politicians, uh, conservative uh, think tanks, media outlets, you start to have to wonder, why is it that Hillary Clinton, Marco Rubio, Lindsey Graham, why are they all on the same board with removing the new Saudi prince? Why would that be the case? And we're going to get into a lot of that on the other side of the break. So on the other side of the break, we're going to get into some various issues we have to first understand the rift between Saudi Arabia and Qatar to understand how the media in America is being influenced by 
the powerful Qatar regime. The, the, I mean, Qatar is rich with oil, rich with uh, you know financial wealth, and their monarchy is loaded. And they understand how to wield influence using finances. I mean, they gave the Clinton Foundation money. They were courting Lindsey Graham and politicians in South Carolina. The Brookings Institute, a think tank, a conservative think tank, being inundated with money from Qatar. Newsmax TV being looked at for purchase by Qatar. And remember, Qatar is the one who owns Al Jazeera. So between Al Jazeera and Saudi Arabia, the influence of media coming out of the Middle East only comes from those countries. Try going and looking up something in Syria. It takes me hours and hours. Eventually I can dig and find it, but I have to piece it all together and it's from various sources. But I'm curious, I've always been curious about why we're even there in Syria. But the Syria conflict really illuminates the difference, the rift between Saudi Arabia and Qatar. And I got a great piece from Intercept Magazine who covers a lot of that and gets you up to speed as far as what's going on in those areas. Don't forget, follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, at Rants Out Loud or at Adrian Slade Show. I'm also on the new platform, Parlay, which is P-A-R-L-E-R, Parler News. You can find me at Adrian Slade. Also on MeWe, Snippy, Convo, and Gab, Adrian Slade. And be sure to read the blog, adriansladeshow.com. We've got tons of great stuff on the website, so go check it out. Back in a second. This is Adrian Slade. The Adrian Slade Broadcast. So before we get too far into the show, and before we get too far into discussing more about the Khashoggi thing, we need to show the backdrop of the Saudi cutter split, because this is how you're going to understand why there's bipartisan support politically and a resounding media drumbeat to coincide with that narrative that the new Saudi prince should be removed. Even though he's secularizing and modernizing Saudi, uh, Saudi Arabia, which is a favorable thing for the standpoint of the Western world. Here is the surface explanation of the split between Saudi Arabia and Qatar. But when you look through the prism of the Syrian civil war conflict, it gets even deeper, and we're going to do that here in a minute. But Vox, of course, not a big fan of Vox, that's V-O-X, but they had a story about this, and they basically said a longstanding war of words between Saudi Arabia and its oil and gas-rich neighbor Qatar has just exploded into open diplomatic warfare, threatening the U.S.-led fight against ISIS and setting off a new wave of instability in the Gulf region. Here's what happened. Saudi Arabia and three of its biggest allies, Egypt, the UAE, United Arab Emirates, and Bahrain, all announced that they were severing diplomatic ties with Qatar, as well as suspending air, land, and sea travel to and from the country. The move came after Riyadh uh, accused Qatar of backing radical Islamic groups like the Muslim Brotherhood and ISIS. Since then, Libya, Yemen, and Maldives have also joined the, the diplomatic boycott. Qatar is one of the wealthiest countries on earth, but it's going to feel the pain all the same because it relies heavily on its neighbors for trade and travel in and out of the region. The peninsular uh, nation imports most of its food through its land border with Saudi Arabia, and which is now closed. Al Jazeera, the Qatar government-owned news network, has reported that trucks carrying food appear to be stranded on the Saudi side of the border. In Doha, 
the capital of Qatar, people are already stockpiling perishable goods, according to producer for Al Jazeera English. Many ships are carrying food to Doha, the first stop in the UAE's biggest cities, Dubai and Abu Dubai. Tensions between Qatar and its neighbors skyrocketed last month after Qatar's state-run news agency published an article in which Qatar's ruling emir, Tamim bin Hamad al-Tahani, <laughs> love these names, was quoted praising Israel and Iran, Saudi Arabia's biggest adversaries in the region. Qatar swiftly disavowed the article as fake news manufactured by hackers, but Saudi and their friends were unconvinced. Then Sheikh Tamim made things even worse when he called Iranian President Hassan Rouhani to congratulate him on his re-election. A clear act of defiance against Saudi's hawkish stance on Iran. The new rift in the Persian Gulf is in and of itself a big deal. It's already being interpreted by some users as the biggest diplomatic crisis in the region since the Gulf War in 1991. But the consequences will ripple beyond the region's internal politics and seriously imperil U.S. military operations. Qatar is home to Ford headquarters of the United States Central Command, which manages all military operations in Afghanistan and the Middle East. And the Air War Command for the U.S.-led fight against ISIS operates at Qatar's airbase. All in all, around 11,000 U.S. military personnel are in Qatar. The big breakup highlights the vexing dual role Qatar has long played with the U.S. in its fight against radicalism in the Middle East. On one hand, the U.S. knows Qatar is a large source of support and funding for groups it considers to be terrorist organizations like Hamas or its adversaries like the Muslim Brotherhood. But on the other hand, it has also been willing to allow the Pentagon to operate bases in its territory and to serve as an intermediary between Washington and Islamic groups across the region. To take one high-profile example, Qatar has helped broke a deal with the Taliban that won the release of the imprisoned U.S. Army Sergeant Bo Bergdahl. And of course, Bo Bergdahl comes back. We know he's a traitor. And what happens to those people that we bring back to Qatar? Oh, yeah, they go back on the battlefield. Some of them are leading the command in, in the Taliban. Going back to the article, though. That means successive U.S. administrations have been willing to work with Qatar out of a belief that the positives outweigh the clear negatives, including its unofficial support for militant activities in the region. Now, one element that led to the escalation was a controversy surrounding Sheikh Tamim and his relationship with entities that Saudi Arabia abhors, like Iran. But another part can be traced to Trump. This is Vox. His recent warmth towards the country and his aggressive vilification against Iran has helped empower Saudi Arabia to finally act on its longstanding distrust of Qatar. So they try to make it seem like, you know, Trump was responsible for a lot of this because of the fact that he, you know, he didn't he didn't just bow to the Saudi king or anything, Obama. But anyways, they're trying to say because Trump was say, saying some nice things about Saudi Arabia and keeping our allied relationship um, moving along that this is responsible for it. And that's where the spin comes in. But what we have to realize is through the prism of the Syrian civil war, it's bigger than just some statement made by the emir from Qatar about, oh, hey, congratulations, Rouhani, on your re-election to Iran. It's bigger than saying, oh, we're fine with Israel. There's a bigger, deeper issue at hand. Now, this whole Syria civil war, which is interesting because Donald Trump, President Trump, has announced he's going to remove 
our presence in Syria, which I applaud. Yay, good Trump. No wall, bad Trump. But removing our military from Syria, good Trump. But, and who is against it, by the way? Oh, yeah, Lindsey Graham, which we're going to get into in a minute, why he's against this, because although I have said ISIS does exist, and it exists in the shadows, and it exists not just in Syria, they're in Iraq, they're in Iran, they're in Pakistan, but what we have to realize is there's a bigger reason why Lindsey Graham, John McCain, Marco Rubio, Hillary Clinton, they all cheered when it's time to attack Assad, and I've done multiple shows on this. But anyways, and it's kind of funny because they cover some of the views of of the shows that I've done based on my research. Now, this is from The Intercept, and it's a really good article. If you can find it, I may put it in some show notes down the road. But it goes like this. There are two dominant narratives regarding the war uh, causes in war in Syria. While they contain some grains of truth, both, both narratives are equally simplistic and misleading. One view, promoted by the Syrian regime of Bashar al-Assad and its supporters, holds that Western powers of Gulf regimes plotted to overthrow Assad, instigated protest against it, and hired rebels to do the job on the battlefield. And this telling the conflict in Syria is primarily the byproduct of outside agitators. The second holds that underlining causes of the war can be explained by the legitimate grievances expressed by the Syrian people against the regime, and that they revolted against it in the era of Arab uprisings. This narrative demands that one view the violence against the regime as a byproduct of legitimate protest by ordinary Syrian citizens against their repressive uh, dictator. Both sides are adamant about the validity of their narrative and the falsehood of the counter-narrative, and both uh, narratives, they're both valid. The Syrian people had indeed accumulated plenty of grievances against the repressive dynastic rule of the Assad family and were fed up with the series of failed promises. Meanwhile, the Gulf regimes in the U.S. were plotting a regime change operation in Syria dating from at least 2006. And I've covered that based on some of the information, documents released by the CIA, interviews with Bashar al-Assad and CNN. I mean, it was obvious we had interest in removing him going back before any of these uh, Arab Spring protests. But these two endlessly recycled narratives obscure a critical cause of the Syrian conflict and the longevity of war, namely the intense competition between Saudi Arabia on one hand and Qatar on the other. The struggle between the foreign powers has been a crucial dimension of the war, and their struggle and involvement has only been made possible with full U.S. and European Union support although different Western countries sided more with one side and the other at different periods of the conflict. Now, to begin with, the media coverage and debate about the Syrian war in the East and the West have largely been colored with propaganda interests of both Qatari and Saudi regimes. Both regimes, directly or indirectly, almost all of the various, they own almost all of the various media in the Arab world. Beyond the media ownership, both regimes have been able to control influence in the Western journalist uh, world and pundits through heavily, uh, heavily bankrolled investments in the elite Washington foreign policy community, especially through think tanks and PR firms. Think tanks in Washington, such as the Brookings Institution, the Middle East Institute, and the Center for Strategic and International Studies are notoriously awash in funding from Gulf Emirates, such as Qatar, and reflect their agenda. Most of the Middle East experts at leading think tanks 
who most prolifically commented on the war in Syria, were unsurprisingly split along the Saudi-Qatari divide. The United Arab Emirates also invested in D.C. think tanks, and that regime's policies, on Syria at least, mirrored those of the Saudi regime. Not since the rise of the American-Israeli Public Affairs Committee have Middle Eastern governments been able to wield such influence in the nation's capital. To be sure, AIPAC would have fought to undermine the influence of these newer Gulf players to shape the discourse had their views on Syria not been congruent with Israel's interest. But when it comes to Syria, AIPAC and its affiliates largely echo the propaganda cliches of the Gulf state emirates. The competition between Qatar and Saudi Arabia and Syria is steeped in history. Both have long-standing ties to the Syrian regime, but often forget that the Saudi regime was a benefactor of Havez al-Assad, the father of Bashar al-Assad, for close to three decades, and that the two regimes' interests often converged in that region. The Saudi-Syrian convergence during these years was also important to the U.S. role in that region. American officials relied on the Saudi regime to sway Syrian foreign policy through the Saudis' uh, financial uh, bankrolling. Hafez al-Assad was a key member of the, Saudi, uh, the Syrian-Saudi-Egyptian axis that formed after the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait in 1990. And this axis dominated Arab politics. It was in the 1990s, though, that the interests of Qatar and Saudi Arabia diverge. By the late 1990s, Qatar was basically isolated due to its conflict with Saudi Arabia. The new Qatari emir, Hamad bin Khalifa, had, been over, had overthrown his pro-Saudi father. Qatar became a cautious member of the Muma camp, which literally uh, which translates to refusalness, which opposed compromising positions in the Arab-Israeli conflict, while it also normalized relations with Israel and hosted U.S. troops. The new Qatari emir had accused the Saudi regime of trying to overthrow him in order to reinstall his father back to the throne. The emir's accusations were most likely true. When Bashar al-Assad began consolidating his power in Syria, he shifted his foreign policy in Lebanon against the interests of Saudi Arabia and the Lebanese prime minister. As a result, Qatar became Assad's ally, naturally, while Saudi Arabia pulled away from the Syrian regime. This is the divergence in competition between Saudi Arabia and Qatar that has shaped the war in Syria to this day. With Bashar al-Assad in power, the Saudi regime has sought to undermine Syrian dominance in Lebanon. Indeed, Saudi Arabia was part of the coalition which, in 2004, pushed for the United Nations Security Council Resolution 1559, designed to end the Syrian role in Lebanon and to disarm Hezbollah, which is an Iranian faction. Furthermore, Saudi Arabia has sought to bring about the regime's change in, in Syria relying on key elements in the ruling elite, most to, uh, mostly top advisors from the era of his father, Havez. During this time, Saudi Arabia's favorite Lebanon, uh, Lebanese politician, Harini, began clashing with Bashar al-Assad. Now, as a result, the Saudi breakup with the Syrian regime was almost complete, and the Saudi-sponsored clique, uh, clique inside Syria, also supported by Harini, escalated their plot against Bashar al-Assad. This was the beginning of the end of Syrian dominance in Lebanon. The discovery of this plot was most likely what brought an end to Hari's life in 2005 when he was assassinated. 
As the Saudis broke from Bashar al-Assad, Qatar had other plans for the region. The Qatari regime was emboldened by the weakness of the Saudi foreign policy and the rise of Erdogan in Turkey, the new ally. Both Qatar and Turkey developed a plan to spread the influence of the Muslim Brotherhood throughout the region from Palestine to Tunisia. As soon as the Arab uprisings broke out in 2011, the Saudi-UAE alliance worked often alongside Israel to maintain the established order or return deposed tyrants to power. By stark contrast, Qatar and Turkey tried to support, financially and through their media, the political ascension of the Muslim Brotherhood. In 2012, the election of Muslim Brotherhood's Mohamed Morsi in Egypt um, was the peak of this effort. When the uprisings began in Syria, both Saudi Arabia and Qatar expected a quick fall of the regime, but that didn't happen. The Saudis, in particular, saw an opportunity to turn Syria into a sectarian conflict of its own ends. Armed uh, rebels and opposition groups with different names spouted all throughout the country, one of them most well-known as the Syrian National Coalition, an exile group that was in opposition to the regime, with tenuous links to rebel groups, usually terrorist groups. Although others fancied names that um, were very bland, they actually were terrorist organizations. This civilian opposition council in exile, modeled after one of the neocons used so effectively before the 2003 invasion of Iraq, was set up in order to project a different image of the Syrian rebels to the world. But they were an effective propaganda force for the West, but had little relationship to the realities on the ground. They also, they, in the political climate in Syria, long influenced by Islamic currents, it, it was rather hospitable to those sectarian religious ideologies, which were much more secular or leftist ideologies. The Syrian regime had a history of merciless repression against leftist dissidents and made this left even weaker in the face of sectarian rebel factions. Qatar found the Al-Qaeda organization in Syria most convenient for its purposes, also known as al-Nusra, while Saudi Arabia preferred al-Islam, which is called Army of Islam. Remember when we did the story on the gassing attack in Douma back in April? Al-Islam was a big part of the responsibility of that gassing attack. There was a preference on both Qatar and the Saudi regime to give non-threatening, often civilian names to the rebel groups. But the trick did not last long, and very quickly and blatantly, Islamic and fanatically religious names prevailed. But Qatar and Saudi funding was not an independent affair. Early on, the New York Times pointed out that financial arms and or financial and arms transfers from Syria to the Gulf had the blessing of the Obama administration. And that was expected because it was expected that the Assad regime would fall quickly and that each side hoped to install its own puppet regime. Saudi Arabia and Qatar got distracted with their own conflict in the Yemen war, and that's where things have stood at the moment. Turkey is now planning to do some new attacks in Syria on their end. So that's where what happened between Saudi Arabia and Qatar. Now, Qatar has their interest with politics, and from the Post and Courier uh, Daily, days after Qatar moved to settle a long-running air travel dispute with the United States, officials with the Arabs' nation's investment arm met with South Carolina leaders to talk about putting some of the group's billions of dollars in assets into the Palmetto State. Quote, this is our first visit to South Carolina, and I hope it's not going to be our last. I hope our presence here will develop further. Abdullah bin Mohammed 
Al-Tahani, chief executive officer of Qatar Investment Authority, told the business leaders during a lunch meeting um, about Boeing CEO's 787 campus in North Charleston. Now, Al-Tahani also met with Charleston Governor Henry McMaster and U.S. Senator Lindsey Graham in order to discuss potential investments in real estate, infrastructure, and other business sectors, although no deals are being finalized. So could Lindsey Graham stand to benefit? Could his state stand to benefit? Could the Governor McMaster's state stand to benefit? I would think so. Now the Huffington Post talks about the Clinton Foundation yet again, the Clinton crime family, the money laundering scheme. Hillary Clinton (laughs) and her foundation, they have confirmed they accepted a $1 million gift from Qatar. And the U.S. Secretary of State, without informing the State Department, said they didn't know anything about it. But basically, they had promised to give the agency review of this donation back before Clinton ran for president. Qatari officials pledged the money in 2011 to mark the 65th birthday of Bill Clinton. Happy birthday, Bill Clinton. Here's some whores and some humidors and a million dollars. Hillary Clinton's husband sought to meet former um, U.S. Well, the um, leaders of, of Qatar sought to meet former U.S. President Bill Clinton in person the following year to present him with this check. They're going to give him one of those big giant checks you win at the uh, U.S. Open, I guess. You know, like uh, Happy Gilmore. Going to stick them all in the back of his car. And this was all according to an email from the foundation official from Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign, John Podesta. Clinton signed an ethics agreement governing her family's globe straddling foundation order to become Secretary of State in 2009. So the Clinton Foundation declined to confirm the Cutter donation. But that right there would show that foreign influence on the Clinton Foundation and on President Hillary Clinton, had she become president, would be something to be concerned about. So now you see this bipartisan political view of Qatar and Qatar's interest, which is anti-Saudi Arabia, which is anti-Khashoggi, which you see suddenly where Hillary Clinton and Marco Rubio and Lindsey Graham and whatever other politician has been infected by Qatar's payments would lead to bipartisan support of dethroning the Saudi prince over the Khashoggi thing and also removal of Assad. And now the Brookings Institute, a highly respected and, and you know conservative organization, they have received massive funding from Qatar and has worked assiduously to legitimize the Muslim Brotherhood figures in the West. This is from Jihad Watch. So it comes to no surprise that your summer reading list from the Brookings Institute Press contains this note about a book that Brookings published in February, Journey into Europe by Akbar Ahmed. In his latest book, Akbar Ahmed, a renowned scholar of Islam, reviews what he learned on a four-year tour across Europe, interviewing Muslims and non-Muslims from all walks of life and how their communities engage each other. Journey into Europe details how tensions over Islam have increased since 9-11 and why the rise of right-wing nationalist political parties across the continent is shaking the foundation of the European Union to its core. Now, it's it's amazing when you start to see the, the influence of the Brookings Institute by Qatar. 
from Free Beacon. Recent revelations of significant financial ties between the Brookings Institute and Qatar's government are raising new questions about the policy positions of the influential Washington think tank, including one top scholar's writing about an Al-Qaeda-linked group known as Ahar al-Sham that is funded by a terrorist financier linked to the Qatari royal family. The New York Times reported earlier that, the, that Qatar has pledged $14.8 million and a four-year donation to the Brookings Institute, making it the single biggest foreign donor to this think tank. That money will help Brookings, uh, it will help finance Brookings Doha Center and Qatar in its capital and its project on U.S. relations in the Islamic world. So we know Qatar has some interest in conservative think tanks. Now they wanted to buy Newsmax. And that sale, I don't know if that sale went all the way through or not, but they actually had a big interest in Newsmax TV. A lot of people said that they did so because they were trying to find favor with the Trump administration, you know, try to put money into Newsmax and then say, hey, look, we're on your side. Don't cause these sanctions to be placed on us. Don't levy these these hurtful um, financial and travel ban issues on Qatar. But we have to be weary of what's being fed to us because a lot of it has to do with outside influence. We don't know who's funding all of these different you know, viewpoints because you always have to follow the money. And so basically what we're seeing is you now understand why Saudi Arabia, though an ally and though a despicable nation, they are modernizing and secularizing itself to become something of an easier country to deal with. And hopefully that secularization will spill over into other nations in that region. But why is it everybody's against them? And it's because Qatar is financially pushing influence against their enemy, which is Saudi Arabia. And remember, Iran and Saudi Arabia are fighting that proxy war with the um, Houthis in Yemen. And the Saudi, the Saudi Qatar proxy war in Syria. All of that needs to be taken into consideration before, before we start pointing fingers and damning individuals on either side of what's going on in the Middle East conflict. So just keep that in mind. Now, be sure to follow me on social media at Rants Out Loud, at Adrian Slade Show on Twitter. You can find me on Parlay, which is P-A-R-L-E-R, Parlay News, P-A-R-L-E-R. Search Adrian Slade. Find me on Gab, on Convo, Snippy, MeWe, all at Adrian Slade. And you can catch up with me online. I'm Adrian Slade. Thanks for tuning in. You can listen to us on Mojo Five O every Saturday at 5 p.m., every Sunday, 6 a.m., and then again at 5 p.m. Check out Mojo Five O on the iHeartRadio app or at Mojo50.com. You can also check out the podcast, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Spreaker, TuneIn, Overcast, Podbean, wherever podcasts are hosted, you can find the Adrian Slade Show. You can also check out the Adrian Slade Show Roku channel in your streaming store. Download it. Check out the blog, adrianslade.show.com. You can also support the show. Subscribe, $2 a month or whatever amount you wish, patreon.com slash Show, or get on over to anchor.fm slash Slade and donate $4.99 a month. We'll see you guys next time. <laughs>